Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we are excited to bring you the news. Derek, let's start with an update on Gaza. So, for people who haven't listened to it, check out our recent update on Gaza. It came out a couple of days ago, but uh, we'll update you with everything that's happened since then. Uh, yeah, for people who uh, haven't listened to that or, or who uh, aren't subscribers, uh, the Main gist of the situation is that last, late last week, Friday morning, uh, the Israeli government and Hamas uh, implemented finally, after a long period of back and forth, an agreement to exchange detainees and to impose uh, a temporary ceasefire uh, in Gaza to enable that exchange to happen. Uh, That process has been going on sort of day by day. Uh, The Hamas has been releasing, you know, it varies from, from day to day, but but somewhere over ten has been the uh, the the bottom limit uh, hostages per day. Uh, the Israeli government has been releasing about three times that number of Palestinians that have been held in administrative detention and uh, otherwise in, in Israeli custody. Uh, and they've been there's been a, a cessation of of hostilities to enable these things to happen. That original deal, as I said in our uh, update the other day, was to was supposed to run four days, uh, and was to involve uh, about fifty hostages uh, in Hamas's custody uh, and about 150 Palestinians who had been in Israeli custody. Uh, and they then, as, as that deal was ex- approaching its end, agreed on a two-day extension, which carried the deal through Wednesday, so the final uh, exchange or then final exchange took place uh, on Wednesday. Uh, at just as time was, I mean, literally almost at the, uh, and this is where we're getting into some new stuff, almost literally at the last minute uh, as the deal was about to expire uh, on Wednesday night, Thursday morning, uh, the two sides agreed to another single day extension. So uh, there was another prisoner, uh, well, I shouldn't say prisoner, there was another detainee swap uh, on Thursday and another day of ceasefire. Now, negotiations are continuing uh, as we're recording this, as far as I know. Uh, I haven't seen any reports of any outcome one way or the other. Uh, that may change by the time anybody listens to this, but negotiations are continuing on another extension. Uh, they're pushing, uh, there's some push for a two-day extension. Uh, the Israeli government seems more inclined to do this on a day-to-day basis. So basically, uh, they want Hamas, you know, in the morning or the night before to present a list of hostages who could be freed the following day. Uh, and the Israeli government will review that list or has been reviewing the lists uh, to determine whether or not it's prepared to continue for another day or if it's going to resume its pummeling of Gaza. Uh, the uh, the problem, the longer this goes, you know, if you were uh, hoping for an extended ceasefire under those conditions, uh, eventually Hamas and any other Gaza militant groups will no longer have any hostages to trade. They've already gotten to the point where the 
their initial inclination, which was to trade civilian women and children, uh, to release civilian women and children ho- uh, hostages, uh, they're running out of, of those. And so they have to start, to, you know, negotiating over potentially uh, women, active duty soldiers, uh, male hostages, potentially male active duty soldiers, if things get uh, go far enough. That's probably the, the final category that uh, Hamas would want to deal with. And there's some suggestion that they're asking for a higher price, effectively, uh, in terms of the number of Palestinians released or the uh, uh, perhaps the, the length of the ceasefire for releasing those categories uh, of hostages. And the Israelis, I don't think, are inclined uh, to to negotiate over this. They're they're comfortable with the the arrangement that they've had for the past several days. And if it doesn't continue, they seem pretty comfortable uh, just resuming uh, the military campaign. Uh, so that's where things stand. As I say, they're still uh, negotiating over the extension. Um, Anthony Blinken is apparently back in the Middle East to pretend to scold the Israelis about civilian casualties. And uh, William Burns, the CIA director, and and Joe Biden's actual Secretary of State, uh, in many respects, is in Qatar, where the negotiations are continuing. The head of Mossad is there. Uh, the Qataris have been mediating all of this, so those negotiations are are still continuing. Thank you, Derek. And unfortunately, because we live in a society where news is a commodity, uh, if you want to learn a bit more about the hostage exchange in the background, check out our special from a couple of days ago. Um, all right, Derek, let's talk about the um, Kuwaiti Emir health scare. What's been going on over in the UAE? Uh, yes, the Emir of Kuwait, uh, Nawaf, Sheikh Nawaf Al Ahmad Sabah, uh, apparently had a little bit of a health scare on Wednesday. Um, he was hospitalized. That's all Kuwaiti media has really said. They haven't gotten into any details, but, uh, he is 86 and he has had some medical concerns in the past. So, uh, I guess any, uh, hospitalization has to be looked at as a, uh, potential concern or a potential, you know, uh, situation. Uh, so, uh, that's something to, to, to watch. Now, uh, there is a succession plan in place. Of course, the crown prince of Kuwait, who is, uh, Sheikh Nawaf's brother, Sheikh Michal al-Ahmed al-Sabah, uh, is a spry young 83. And so he'll be ready to, to hit the ground running. He already does manage, I think, most of the the day-to-day uh, running of the kingdom on a, on a, at least as far as the royal family is concerned. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's move on to India, uh, where the United States government has accused the Indian government of complicity in a murder plot. Could you tell us uh, what's been going on? Yeah, this is uh, potentially pretty inflammatory, depending on how it goes. The Justice Department, the U.S. Justice Department on Wednesday uh, announced criminal charges against an Indian uh, national named uh, Nikhil Gupta, who is has been arrested by the Czech government and is awaiting extradition back to the United States. He was allegedly uh, involved or the orchestrator, the ringleader uh, in a plot for a plot to murder a prominent Sikh nationalist who is living in New York City and has, uh, I believe, U.S. citizenship. I I, I think it's citizenship. It's not just uh, residency. But either way, this is obviously uh, the kind of thing that you uh, put people on trial for. Uh, the Biden administration had last week announced that it had foiled a scheme a, to uh, uh, kill a prominent Sikh individual in the U.S., but didn't didn't go into much detail until Wednesday's announcement. Um, and as I, as you alluded to, what what 
makes this particularly inflammatory and not just a kind of curiosity is that in the the charges in the document or the, the charges that the Justice Department unveiled on Wednesday, they claim that Gupta was in contact with an unnamed, uh, what they call senior field officer of the Indian government. Now, this has a lot of echoes uh, to a story that people may remember from back in September when the Canadian government accused uh, New Delhi of involvement in the murder of a Sikh separatist leader, Sikh nationalist uh, in British Columbia that, that happened, I think, in June earlier this year. Um, it, in that case, Indian officials sort of responded that, uh, A, we had nothing to do with this, and B, we were right to kill this guy. So it was a little bit incoherent, uh, but definitely very defiant. In this case, it's been substantially less defiant, which I think you can chalk up to the difference in stature between the U.S. government and the Canadian government. Uh, the Indians, uh, Indian officials feel a little bit less uh, swaggy about this one. So they are uh, they have said they're opening an internal investigation into the issue. Um, I suspect if, you know, Gupta, as I said, is awaiting extradition. If he if the trial uh, goes forward, there could be a lot of uh, uncomfortable revelations here, I think, for the Indian government in terms of its activities uh, in targeting these kinds of folks overseas. All right, Derek, uh, let's move over to North Korea, which continues to do things that are wildly unpredictable. So it seems like they've put a spy satellite into orbit, which uh, is kind of interesting. So Derek, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, this I, I wouldn't say that their attempt to put it in orbit was wildly unpredictable because they've tried several times to do this. Uh, but the Sorry, fact they that they succeeded. finally yeah, they succeeded. They succeeded. Yeah. The fact that they finally succeeded. That's like a big uh, deal. I want to like underline. Is, it's like a real big deal. <laughs> uh, is, is somewhat uh, unpredictable. Although uh, of course, you know, there was this just a couple of, you know, a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago, there was this big meeting between Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un uh, in Russia, where Kim uh, presumably put the finishing touches on uh, a deal to supply Russia with weapons, munitions mostly, uh, for use in Ukraine in return for some Russian help with North Korea's satellite program. Now, most of that, uh, to the extent that there has been any, it's only been a short time. Uh, so I, I don't know how much you know opportunity the Russians would have had to lend a hand, but most of their expertise was probably devoted toward improving the capabilities of the satellite itself. But they may have had something to say uh, about how to achieve a successful orbital space launch, which is uh, you know as we said is is something the the North Koreans have struggled with uh, in the past. Now uh, the launch. Uh, immediately caused a security crisis with the South Korean government. Uh, there is or maybe was would be a better term uh, in place, something called the Comprehensive Military Agreement that was agreed to uh, a few years ago by the North and South Korean governments uh, that was supposed to de essentially demilitarize or, or de uh, kind of remove surveillance uh, and other hardware from the demilitarized zone separating the two Koreas. Uh, that deal bans, among other things, it bans aerial surveillance by either country of the other, which the South Korean government has interpreted uh, to include satellite surveillance. And so they decided uh, to scrap part of the agreement to boost their own surveillance capabilities along the border following this launch. The North Koreans then took that opportunity to uh, scrap essentially the rest of the deal uh, and re reimpose or re rebuild border guard posts that they had 
vacated under that arrangement and to move heavy weapons back into the border region that they had moved out as part of that agreement. Uh, we don't have a good a handle on the capabilities of the spy satellite. Uh, North Korean state media made a big deal earlier this week of reporting that the satellite had taken photographs of the White House and the Pentagon that Kim was reportedly studying for some reason. Uh, that that doesn't suggest necessarily a particular, a particularly high level of sophistication, uh, although who knows what, what kind of photographs they were, I guess. Thanks, Derek. Uh, interesting story we'll pay attention to. Uh, let's talk about the attempted coup in Sierra Leone. Yes, this took place over the weekend. There's not much uh, known about this in terms of detail, and, and since it was a failed coup, I suspect uh, it will remain that way. But authorities in Sierra Leone say that they uh, they foiled, uh, essentially, or there was a failed coup attempt on Sunday morning in Freetown uh, that involved a number of active duty and retired members of the country's military and its police forces. Uh, they attacked a military barracks in the capital and two prisons. Uh, they killed at least 20 people in the process and released somewhere over 2,000 detainees. A number of them have been since recovered uh, and, and you know, put back in captivity, uh, but I'm not sure how many I, I've seen. Only some very, uh, very low numbers, actually, uh, of detainees that have been uh, kind of picked up again. Authorities have, Sierra Leonean authorities have arrested, uh, at last count, 13 military officers and one civilian in connection with the plot. They have published uh, the photographs of several other individuals, I think uh, over 30 uh, folks, most of them men, there were a couple of women uh, apparently being sought in connection with this uh, with this incident. Uh, again, details are pretty spotty. It, it was a failed coup, so you don't have the coup leaders or coup plotters, you know, kind of announcing uh, why they did it or, or making justifications for it. But there are a number of, you know, sort of likely... Uh, motivations here, economic resentment, political resentment, factionalism within the military. One faction's getting, you know, uh, benefits from the government. One faction isn't, and they get resentful of that. The uh, president of Sierra Leone, Julius Maldivio, uh won a narrow and, and heavily disputed victory uh, in, in a presidential a re-election victory in June. Uh, and that may have uh, also put things on this track and may have exacerbated some of those uh, pre-existing resentments. Thanks, Derek. Let's talk about the Dutch election. Yes. Uh, so to, I think, some degree of surprise, the uh, far-right Party for Freedom with wonderfully racist, uh, xenophobe uh, Geert Wilders at, at its head won last week's Dutch parliamentary election by a fairly handy margin. Uh, the polls had had suggested that Party for Freedom could wind up winning that election, but they had put it, you know, within a percentage point or two or a, a seat or two when you, you break it down into actual representation uh, of, you know, some of the other kind of large parties. And in fact, Party for Freedom came away with 37 seats, I think, at last check in the 150 seat Dutch House of Representatives, which is 12 seats more than the second place finisher, which was the Green Left Labor Alliance. This obviously puts Wilders in position to become prime minister, uh, a Dutch prime minister, but uh, he's got a long way to go to get to uh, majority support uh, or majority coalition 
in the parliament. So he's had some agents kind of sounding out other parties uh, to to see if there's a possibility of uh, going into coalition. The first party that that he approached was the current Dutch ruling party, the People's Party for Freedom, which is conservative. It's not as far right as as Vilders' party, but there is some ideological affinity. Uh, the the leaders of that party said that they would not join a coalition led by Wilders, but they could support it legislatively on specific topics. So that was something. Another potential coalition partner, the New Social Contract Party, announced this week uh, that that it will not join uh, a coalition led by Wilders unless uh, there is significant kind of ideological, let's say, moderation on the part of Wilders and, and the uh, the party. So um they they left the they left a crack in the door um but it's probably going to take some some significant ne- negotiations builders has suggested that he would be willing to kind of stifle himself uh, on some of his more overtly xenophobic racist uh, discriminatory principles uh in order to secure enough backing to become prime minister but uh, that's uh, that's a process that i think is going to take a while and uh, because they have overperformed and and won a larger chunk of seats than I think people expected, that complicates the process for any other party that might want to uh, try to take a stab at this. If Wilders fails to get majority support, it's going to be hard uh, to envision another party kind of cobbling together a coalition under these circumstances. But, you know, we shall see. Derek, I think we should do our AP 2024 retreat in Amsterdam. What do you think about Uh, that? Yeah, I, I don't know if they'd welcome us. I think we'll have to we'll have to wait and see how that goes. But yeah, they'll put us in the Hague. Uh, but luckily, it's maybe. only an hour yeah. to, hour away. Well, uh, if they put us in the Hague, there, you know, maybe the U.S. government will invade at that point and uh, bust <laughs> us out. I think Biden would defend us. I think he would go out on a limb for us. Hello, Prestige Heads, Danny here, and I wanted to tell you about this great product that I've actually been using for the past several months, and that's Aura Digital Frames. Now, you may have heard on the podcast recently a baby in the background, and it is indeed true that I've recently had a kid. But my parents, unfortunately, and like many of us, live pretty far away. But one way I've been able to update them on my baby's life is with Aura Digital Frames. I've been constantly sending them photos of him in all states, crying laughing, what have you. And I can tell they really love it because they constantly ask for more photos. It's really been an amazing way for us to stay in touch and for them to feel like they're able to watch my baby grow up in a real way. It's an awesome way to stay in contact with people you love who might not live super close. And other people agree. Aura Frames was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter. And Fast Company said the simple, stylish digital picture frame can replace social media in your life, which is good for all of you. I know. So with Aura, give the perfect gift this holiday. Visit AuraFrames.com today and get $30 off their best-selling frames with the code PRESTIGE. These frames sell out quickly, though, so get yours before they're gone. That's A-U-R-A frames.com with the promo code PRESTIGE. And as always, terms and conditions apply. Uh, Speaking of defense, why don't we move on to Ukraine? And Derek, give us an update on what's going on there. Yeah, there's not very much. I mean, things are still things are, are are you know essentially where they were a couple of weeks ago. There's been some activity in the east. Uh, the Ukrainian military commander in Avdivka, which is a city city we've been talking about uh, for a while now, it's been the target of Russian offensive. Said uh, on Tuesday 
that the Russian military had been uh, intensifying yet again its assault on that city and was attempting to attack it from, he said, all directions. Avdivka is one of two or three places that they've really identified as a potential uh, target for a kind of right before winter success that they could seize one of these places or more than one of them uh, and kind of go into the rather subdued, I guess, campaign season uh, in winter with a with a success, uh, you know, kind of uh, notching another uh, success. The Russian military did say on Wednesday that it had captured a village uh, outside of Bakhmut, which is uh, a city a little bit further east in Donetsk Oblast that is already, of course, under Russian control. But there have been some some ongoing fighting between the Russians and Ukrainians in the area around Bakhmut. So they uh, had some progress there. Uh, I will note that uh, the Ukrainian government is supposed to sometime this week, they haven't done it yet as far as I know, but sometime this week they were supposed to unveil uh, a new military mobilization system or reforms to their current mobilization system uh, to try to reduce the incidence of draft dodging and of uh, some awkward uh, awkward seeming uh, incidents of forced con- conscription that have not redounded very well to the uh, Ukrainian government's reputation. Uh, it's it's not clear what I- entirely this is going to entail, but one of the things I've seen talked about is is the uh, making use of uh, sort of commercial recruitment firms to identify people who have uh, kind of in-demand skills, so trained mechanics, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and then those people would be somehow ass- given assurances that they would not be deployed to the front, but would rather be put in sort of support roles uh, behind the lines. So the, the thinking being that that would uh, maybe encourage some people who are trying to avoid conscription to to join up uh, in, in order to, you know, secure uh, a position that was not, is not directly uh, in the battlefield, but you know, the Ukrainian military needs frontline soldiers. So I don't know uh, how much that's going to be of use, and, and certainly there has to be some other part of this that that's going to you know bolster recruitment for just plain old uh, frontline infantry and, and other units. Where do you see U.S. and Western support going here? You know, it's it's interesting because the Biden administration is still talking about maintaining support for Ukraine. And Anthony Blinken was just in Europe. He's in the Middle East, as I said earlier, but he, he stopped in Europe on his way, you know, expressed that, uh, you know, all the, the commitments to Ukraine are still as strong as they ever were. And uh, the U.S. is still 100 percent in Ukraine's corner. But nothing's happening in Washington. Like you have this Republican House of Representatives, Republican-controlled House of Representatives that has uh, stifled so far any attempt at supplemental uh, funding for military support, for additional military support for Ukraine. And even um, if you look at what the Biden administration has asked for, if that's all they're, they, they've asked for, I think, $60 billion for Ukraine in this, this supplemental request, if that's all they ask for for 2024, that is a significant decrease uh, in support year over year. So, uh, you know, there's certainly reason to think that structurally, uh, you know, if nothing else, it's going to be harder to maintain current levels of support uh, for very much longer. And, and you know, talk, there's been talk of this, the conflict kind of, you know, reaching a stalemate. And uh, that's probably caused some of the luster to go off and, and, and attention is now focused uh, much more on Gaza than it is on Ukraine. Uh, 
you know, that that stalemate, uh, you know, we've talked about this on the on the show, and I think that's that's an accurate, uh, more or less an accurate depiction of, of where the conflict is right now. I don't know how long it, it's going to last, because if this stretches out long enough, you could very easily envision the Russian military as Western support diminishes. Uh, the Russian military, which still has, you know, greater res- reserves to draw on, greater capacity for producing weapons, et cetera, uh, you could definitely see the Russian military just grinding the Ukrainians down uh, and going back on a, a, a serious offensive at some point. So, uh, you know, it's it's unclear to me uh, how much longer this support can be sustained, but also how much longer under those conditions Ukraine can can really manage to keep things uh, where they are. Yeah. And uh, everyone knows we're going to talk about it. And sorry to bring the sort of the vibes down in here, Derek, but uh, Henry Kissinger is dead. Oh my God. This is how I find out that Henry Kissinger is dead. I... And everyone, uh, when at the time of listening, uh, we probably already released an episode on this and we will have an episode also later today um, with Greg Grandin on Kissinger. So check that out. But Derek, um, not to spoil the other episodes, but why don't you just quickly tell us just the, the, the facts of the matter? Uh, well, I, I mean, he died. He was 100. So, uh, you know, it's not he a died. huge surprise. <laughs> Those are the facts. Uh, he's dead. You know, uh, that's that's all I can really say. I, you know, I don't I don't have a a cause of death other than he was a hundred. Uh, and, uh, you know, I can't, uh, can't speak to the status of yeah, his, the, the end of a soul. If such the a end thing of exists. an era is certainly uh, dead with Henry Kissinger. Uh, but, you could write the history of the 20th, 20th century through his story. And, uh, we'll talk about that a lot more, um, with our guests, but everyone, you should just know if you didn't already that Kissinger has died um so derek why don't we move on now and close out our, our condolences <laughs> oh, yeah, our i guess condolences, to anybody of course, to um, i actually don't know family yeah. and friends hillary clinton you know, samantha power uh anthony yeah, blinken you know, who's, who's sad at the, the, feet of the uh larry summers i think him, went to his birthday party so yeah all, all those people are sincere condolences all the, all the luminaries of of american life yeah you, you can't Okay, so let's move on now to what I'm sure is going to be frustrating news, and that is climate. And uh, the COP28 has just begun. So, Derek, why don't you remind people what the COP28 is and what's been going on? Yes, the COP summits are the UN's annual climate production. So, uh, you know, they they, uh, they happen every year. The, the most famous of them is still, uh, which is kind of, Kind of a drag. The most famous one is still the the summit that took place in France in 2015, where the Paris Climate Agreement was the product. Uh, that's still the the most famous of them because it's the last time anybody really uh, did anything about the climate, and and we haven't stuck to the Paris uh, Agreement strictures anyway. So uh, you know, it's uh, but it's it is the thing that everybody refers to when they uh, they talk about limiting carbon emissions or, or limiting temperature rises. Uh, but the the Latest iteration, COP28, uh, did kick, a, kick off on Thursday in Dubai, uh, in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, most of the attention on this conference so far has focused on the uh, somewhat dubious uh, decision to award hosting duties to a major fossil fuel producing country, which then uh, immediately appointed the head of the state oil company as the president of what the conference. What did you expect now, them to do, Derek? Uh, not do that? In, in fact. 
in fairness, he does have uh, also some background in uh, sort of renewable energies. So uh, that was the uh, the just that's been the justification that they've offered. Um, there was a report earlier this week from the BBC uh, that uh, was based on what it called leaked briefing documents that said that Emirati officials were planning to use the occasion of the COP28 forum with all these countries attending, sending representatives to conclude a whole bunch of new oil and gas deals. So, uh, you know, slightly undermining the purpose of the the, the summit. Uh, but, you know, good for them, I guess, if they get the chance to, to do some big business deals. Uh, Emir- the, the Emiratis have denied somewhat angrily uh, the claim that they they were doing this, they say it's all uh, fake news, and that they don't need a, a summit to uh, to do oil and gas deals, which is true. I mean, they do those you know uh, when they get up for breakfast in the morning. Um, nevertheless, there is some possibility that that, that will be going on in the back rooms. Uh, any expectations in terms of actual progress on the climate front are unsurprisingly uh, relatively low. It did get off to a somewhat promising start on Thursday with an agreement to create uh, a new climate loss and damage fund. This has been in the works for some time. Uh, It's been the subject of of international negotiations, and there was uh, a hope that that some kind of arrangement would be in place for the start of this summit. Uh, Now, you know, this is good news in the sense that it's in principle, in theory, uh, a, a mechanism that could be used to compensate countries that have been uh, battered by climate change. So, you know, through heavy flooding or drought or, uh, you know, the, uh, any number of, you know, uh, heavy storms, uh, all these sorts of things, you could see uh, money being diverted to countries that are dealing with a sea level rise. Another one, of course. That said, you know, it, it very much remains to be seen whether wealthy nations who are expected to contribute to this fund, and some of them did in relatively small amounts on Thursday, uh, whether they're going to step up and actually contribute enough money to for it to matter, for it to actually be commensurate with the need. Uh, estimates are that moving forward, uh, you're going to need about $100 billion a year to really compensate uh, countries that are that are getting hit by climate change. And, you know, there's nowhere near uh, any indication that, that uh, the U.S. and the EU and Germany and these other countries are, are going to contribute anywhere near that much to this fund. But, you know, it is, uh, I guess, uh, a place to start. I don't know who, who's to say. Uh, the other thing of note, I guess, on this uh, this front is that there was another investigative report this week uh, regarding the UAE's oil-rich neighbor, Saudi Arabia, uh, that says that the Saudi government, uh, this was published in a few outlets, The Guardian, uh, was for one, uh, that the Saudi government is pursuing its own kind of oil-pushing uh, agenda it's called the Oil Demand Sustainability Program. Uh, and what it is basically is, is a way to leverage or, or in a plan to leverage the kingdom's public investment fund, which is just massive at this point, hundreds of billions of dollars uh, fueled by you know, high oil prices and, and oil revenue, mostly. And to use some of the kingdom's largest companies, and, and there are several of those as well, to essentially fund projects in developing nations that involve very fossil fuel heavy technologies. So things like supersonic air travel, gas fuel, cheap gas fuel, internal combustion cars, uh, power plants, so sort of offshore 
power ships uh, that run on oil and natural gas to generate electricity. The aim is to target emerging African economies and, and Asian economies uh, especially and to uh, get them hooked on oil and natural gas in this way to offset, as the name suggests, uh, offset uh, reduced demand from developing countries that are moving toward more renewable energies and maintain a level, sustain uh, a level of global demand for oil that is thoroughly incompatible with any sort of international climate agenda. Uh, but, you know, that's, uh, I guess, to be expected. Thank you, Derek. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. 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 Yeah, 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 y